Science isn't a belief system. It isn't uh, um, a means of achieving any kind of belief at all. In fact, it's kind of the opposite. It's a way to not let yourself believe. It's methods for keeping yourself from tricking yourself into believing. Because it's believing is something that comes very natural to us. And happens to us largely on a subconscious level, and it has um, a basis that's evolutionary and has to do with communal selection over millions of years. Um, the point is that it's subconscious to us. I don't want to go into any more detail about that because it gets into really negative stuff whenever you get into evolution. But it's it's subconscious to us, and because of that, people. Um, think they understand something and they really just believe it and they, and that's really the biggest problem I see and there's even a it's kind of gotten worse because of this this thing I call internet science troll morons these are people who previously you know never would have had any involvement in science at all maybe they've had a few classes here and there but because the internet internet makes it so easy to get to certain forums and you know there's no they can't get kicked out for being stupid you know and um i encounter these people because i get kicked out of forums because my opinion doesn't agree with, with their opinion you know i'll say something like um there's zero evidence of any gaseous h2o in the atmosphere and they'll immediately start calling me names i'm talking about some of these other forums not this this other one does that too, but, but, and, and so if you go to any physics forum on the internet and you express anything that's outside of what's in academia, they will literally just shut you down right there. And that's even true for places like, um, oh, what is that? Cora. Now, Cora it's a little bit different because Cora, they're not going to shut you down um, just for making a, a statement to that effect. But what will happen is, is you'll have a whole bunch of people out there who will just make sarcastic remarks remarks to you or they'll even ask you questions that sound intelligent and then when you and when they find they can't dispute what you're saying because they thought it was going to be real simple you know and they just make belligerent comments and of course if you but what happens is if you return that belligerence well you get kicked off and that's what's happened to me and Frankly, it was a good thing because there was nothing there worth. None of these people had the slightest understanding of how to carry on a scientific discussion. And I find that is maybe the most common thing of all. They can't carry on a very simple scientific discussion. Almost always it comes around to um, they believe something. They can't support it. They can't find any evidence for it. But they believe it so much that they're just going to insult you and that's all they're ever going to do and so um but um where i've encountered these and so what happens is if i want to discuss anything of my theory online i got very limited options um because uh, so many of these forums have this belief system and this belief system is something that is sacred to them and they they can't let people say otherwise you know so you know the issue I want to bring up or that I, I often bring up to kind of like test the waters 
and also just to um, um, establish basis of discussion is the fact that there's really no gaseous H2O in Earth's atmosphere and that the reason people believe there is is because they're well there's more than one they're confused about water right they had never thought about it in their whole life and no one has ever told them to think about it and moreover more than, and in fact you won't even find it discussed in any textbooks whatsoever because frankly until extremely recently and because of myself no one was aware of it think about that in our gaseous environment here um, our, our atmosphere you know there's a large amount of nitrogen there's oxygen and there's a few other trace gases gases most of them are irrelevant to anything I'm discussing here and um, but also within there there's water now so much of what happens in the atmosphere is dependent on the fact that there's water specifically I'm talking about storms now it's not well known but the the reason storms happen is because of something structural in the atmosphere and the basis of that structure is something well is a plasma that emerges on wind shear boundaries I'm not going to go into that now but that is what's happening in the atmosphere now this isn't plainly apparent in any way and so what's happened is um, is our uh, forefathers built this narrative this scenario and they associated enough um, analogies and and, uh, and um, other things that kind of relate to what we want to believe anyways and they created this kind of a, a narrative and it and it has specific points in it that are um, easily refutable if you just work it through you know and but here's the thing the first step is to realize that in the atmosphere um, there really is no gaseous H2O now when I say gaseous what I mean is there's no individual molecules of H2O by themselves now the reason that's easy for me to comprehend is because I have a very sophisticated understanding of the actual electrodynamics that underlie the hydrogen bonding of H2O which are not understood okay so so that's the reason why it's easy for me to come to that conclusion okay now before I had this comprehensive understanding of water and was able to come to that conclusion real easily I also came to that conclusion that there's no gaseous H2O in the atmosphere um, what was my original reason for even thinking about that uh, it had to do with I was working out what's going on in the atmosphere oh no I know what it was now that I think about it um, I started to look into this concept of surface tension and I started to ask what causes it and I started and after I saw the dynamics of what causes it I started to wonder if maybe um, H2O molecules have this tendency that the more separate this was my basic premise it turned out to be true 
that, that there was some, and I couldn't even hardly express it at first, but you know, that H2O molecules, when they separate from each other, they're something on their, the thing that causes them to be attracted to each other actually increases. Now it turns out that is true, and the mechanism of that has to do with the fact that H2O molecules by proximity to each other actually um, achieve a higher degree of um, symmetry in their spin of their electron due to the fact that each H2O molecule is removing some of the lopsidedness associated with what we call polarity, right? So, anyways, I know that sounds real complicated, and that's something you would have to look into in my other stuff. Um, let me see now. I had a point here, though. Um, and yeah, so anyways, I suspected, that, therefore, that as H2O molecules got even smaller and smaller and smaller, and, you know, down to 100, I could envision that, in a sense, we could look at it as, well, when they get down to, you know, 10 molecules, the percentage of their molecules that are on the surface is much higher than if it was, let's say, 100 molecules. Because when there's only 10 molecules, about six of them are going to be, six or even seven. But when there's 100 molecules, it might be only 20. So you divide 20 by 100, and you, you buy, divide six by 10, and you realize that there's an increase in relative surface the smaller the droplet gets. Does that make sense? So you have a droplet of 100, and you have a droplet of 10, and you just look at, you just count the ones that are on the surface, and then you, on the other one, you count the ones that are on the surface, and you do some simple math, you know, 6 to 10. Um, I think the one was 20, I assumed, on the, on the outside of that 100. And, and you kind of, you can understand that this is something just simply geometrical, right? It's just simply, you know, if we went to a 1,000 droplet, it would... It would go from, let me see now, the other one was about 20%. It would go down to probably like around 7% or, or even 5 or 6% if there was a droplet that had 1,000 molecules in it because the number of molecules that are on the outside relative to the number of molecules total decreases greatly with the size of the entity, the size of the droplet. And if we looked at surface tension, at that time I was just kind of, I just had this vague notion of surface tension. I kind of thought in those terms. I said, well, it, it, that would mean that, that the more surface, the more surface tension. And, and that in a sense, surface tension could, we could think of it as a knob. And, and it turned out when I actually looked at the math of H2O, which involves 400 demands per molecule, it turned out to be even more right than I was assuming. It turns out there's four different levels of power of hydrogen bonding. Now, if you think of it, the, the highest degree of hydrogen bonding, I mean, I said hydrogen bonding, I meant to say surface tension. You know, keep in mind now, it's going to be relative. It's not going to be the same for each droplet. Now, the highest degree of surface tension you can get on an H2O molecule, on, on with H2O, is when it's steam. And it's when it's individual molecules, because then the surface is literally 100%. Now, if there's two molecules, the surface is going to be, you know, like 75% or something like that. And it turns out that at those low numbers, it actually works out very mathematically according to um, whether or not those four hydrogen bonds. So at very low numbers, 
those things are extremely strong, much stronger than when they were a larger droplet. Does that make sense? Because they have so much more surface tension when they are uh, small, relative surface tension, I should say. And remember, surface tension is the result of the fact that the hydrogen bonds are stronger when the molecules themselves are less connected to each other. That's the important thing. The less connected they are, the less relatively connected they are to each other, the more uh, surface tension um, the more surface tension can, it has a relative aspect to it. Or, I was just interrupted there a second ago. Um, I guess what I was saying was, the more um, come on Jim, think, think, surface tension. Yeah, and so the point is that it completely makes sense that there would never ever be any gaseous H2O in the atmosphere and that instead the reason air became um, clear was because they were being broken up into such small little entities, maybe somewhere around 10, 25, or even 100, which are incredibly small compared to what we see, right? I mean, that's even at 100 H2O uh, molecules within a droplet, that's still like 1 1,000th the size of the smallest piece of dust. So that H2O molecules could be invisible if their droplet size was very small completely made sense. And so now we had a situation. Now here's the thing, and this is a good place to, to break in and report this one thing. Every single one of us, everyone listening to this, and everyone who will listen to this someday, when we go through life, when we, when we notice that water evaporates, what do we all assume? We assume it has become gaseous, and we don't put much more thought into it than that. Now, we know for a fact that the boiling temperature of H2O is much hotter than anything in our ambient environment in the atmosphere. Much hotter, you know, 100 degrees Celsius, that's 212 Fahrenheit, and we only get to maybe half of that at most. So we're not even close to being near the boiling temperature. And the reason the boiling temperature is so high is because that last step of getting that one molecule to be by itself involves breaking through all of the polarity on it's and so it is the most polar it actually becomes more polar when it when H2O molecules get down to smaller smaller droplets and so that's the reason it takes that much temperature you know it, it and so there and since we don't have that much temperature in the atmosphere there's just no way that there could that the that the moisture that's mixed in with the air there's just no way that it could possibly be genuinely individual molecules gaseous no unfortunately it's going to well i don't know fortunately or whatever it's going to be little droplets and it turns out that when you understand how things work in the atmosphere it is little droplets and they're under constant bombardment 
and the hotter it is and the higher the pressure that sounds strange you would think it'd be the other way around but actually no it's the hotter it is and the higher the and the higher the pressure you know keep in mind those two tend to go with each other too heat and pressure in the atmosphere where it's hot there's usually higher pressure where now heat and pressure caused the bump constant bombardment of the droplets in the in our atmosphere and that causes them to break up into extremely small entities now how small is extremely small my guess would be anything under 25 but I don't know those details no one does there's so much we don't know and we've been so completely confused by by the fact that almost everyone who's approached this subject going back in you know there's some there was some um, cloud stuff going on back in the 1960s they were doing some examinations in clouds within rooms and they were looking for um, a pattern and a better understanding of it and they kind of came to these weird conclusions that no one's ever been able to verify and that has to do with um, um, Uh, what's that have to do with this? There's someone there. Oh, there must be driving. Driver's training. I think that's what's going on. They keep coming around in circles here, and I see someone driving around in back of me, and you just don't know, you know? Um, and anyways, so, there's all these, there's all of this. We know H2O molecules can't become gaseous. It's a nonsense thing to believe. And we don't really even have to think that hard about it because all you have to do is look at an H2O phase diagram. You realize it takes a certain temperature and that temperature doesn't exist in our environment. So what that means is that H2O molecules have the ability to form incredibly small droplets. And they do so in abundance. And there's actually a lot more moisture in what appears to be clear moist air. It looks like and it feels like clear moist air there's actually a lot more moisture in there than you realize. It's just that this moisture doesn't act like moisture when it's in larger droplets. It acts more like air. And so that's another thing that fools us. And so all these reasons build up, and it's, com it's made a mess of many parts of science, in that until you understand that, you just don't have any way of arriving at any understanding of what's going on in the atmosphere. So... And his, here's the larger point I want to get to, okay? One of the basic assumptions, the most founding fundamental assumptions of meteorology is this belief that moist air is lighter than dry air. Now, why do they believe that? Have they measured it? Well, no. The reason they believe that is that it did some simple math based on the assumption that H2O was gaseous at ambient temperatures in clear, moist air. So, note the, the reasoning there. You have clear, moist air. It looks clear. It feels like, you know, dry air, right? So, it, it would only make sense that the molecules in this, and it's perfectly invisible, right? There's no, nothing cloud. It would only make sense that, 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 um, that it would be gaseous. Well... Yeah, up until you look at the 
the phase table, I mean, yeah, the phase diagram, and you see that it's boiling point. And so you would think people would look, think a little bit harder, but then here comes the other part of the puzzle that messes things up. And that is our understanding of H2O is completely infantile. It's completely messed up. And um, it has to do with mistakes that were made in the 1950s. Um, I refer to these mistakes as Pauling's omissions. These are things that Linus, something, uh, not things, it's a very specific thing actually, that Linus Pauling, a scientist, a Nobel Prize winning scientist back in the early 1950s, he's the one that came up with kind of the rules of hydrogen bonding and these are the rules that are taught in school, you know. Now the problem was is he was confused, you know, it's just that simple. He didn't really understand what was going on with the dynamics of H2O. He made an assumption, and the assumption was that the um, arrangement of the molecules within the H2O molecule, you know, that kind of a V shape, the assumption was, very simply, that it was that arrangement of molecules in and of itself that caused the polarity. Okay? And he was right in the sense it was the arrangement of those molecules but really what causes polarity is the net arrangement of electrical gradients okay and the net electrical gradients also includes molecules that are adjacent to each other so to make a long story short and it gets real confusing when you consider that polarity is what pulls them together right but to make a long story short the more H2O molecules surround each other the more they bring in electrical gradients that achieve a higher degree of electrodynamic um, a symmetry or what they call balance you know um, it's actually quatrahedral symmetry and they achieve a higher degree of that no I'm sorry not quatrahedral where come on? It's tetrahedral. That's the right word. Tetrahedral. And they achieve that um, simply by forming hydrogen bonds with each other, which is what they are inclined to do when they're polar. So H2O molecules can be described as constantly being very aggressive about forming hydrogen bonds to therefore become unaggressive. Does that make sense? Um, kind of describe it again, H2O molecules want to are very aggressive about forming hydrogen bonds because they have high polarity before they have hydrogen bonds, but then after they form hydrogen bonds, their polarity has been neutralized, and that's why H2O is such a high, um, that's why it's so fluid, such a low viscosity. That's why H2O has, you know, it's very fluid, it flows very easily, and that's because the molecules themselves, the force that's holding them together, is very weak and it's weak because of they themselves their own interaction with each other so you know that's what's really going on there and the result is that it creates all this confusion and what happens when you have confusion you have the deepest form of belief possible it's the most headstrong the most stubborn the most stupid it's the dumbest part of humanity comes to the forefront because once there's confusion people start grasping for straws and they start taking stands 
and they refuse to actually think. And they think the fact that anyone brings up details that they don't understand, they're someone to be attacked. You know? And so that's what I encounter. It's just very normal. Um, I get attacked constantly, constantly, because I bring up some facts. And here's a fact that I think you can all look into, okay? Um, and, and it's perfect explicable why this is the truth, by the way. I'll explain that also. But go on the internet and try to find someone somewhere who's done a re reproducible experiment where they tested and, and, and did their best to detect whether or not H2O was genuinely gaseous or whether or not it was is not genuine gases and is, um, as I say, a droplet when it exists in the atmosphere. You know, look into that. And, and what you'll find is it doesn't exist. There's nothing out there. Now, you'll find all kinds of reference to water vapor, and you'll even hear them occasionally make reference to that water vapor is gaseous, but which is, you know, what everyone believes, right? So that's, a, that's not surprising in any way. But you'll never find anyone who actually tested for that assumption. And, you, and why not? Why, why? Well, because no one ever thought about it before, ever. That's why not. No one ever thought about the fact that, hey, I wonder... No one ever noticed that the H2O phase diagram is at 212 degrees Fahrenheit for at 1 atm pressure, where we most of us live, and that therefore we're far below the boiling point of H2O, and that therefore the air in, in the atmosphere cannot possibly be gaseous. It can only be some kind of liquid droplet. And of course, we would expect it to be a very small liquid droplet, especially in clear, moist air where we can't see it. So, you know, that's what's really happening. The water in our atmosphere is not in gaseous form. Um, now, you're going to find people who are extremely, extremely um, aggressive, uh, uh, angry, and, and if you bring up this topic, and they will be they will assure you over and over again that that you're making a big mistake and and they're very very emotional about it and um but here's the thing you'll never find an answer you'll never find anything on the internet where everyone's anyone's ever tested this because it seems to most people to be a completely absurd thing to test for everybody knows from the time you're a child that when water evaporates, it becomes gaseous, right? It's, it's obvious, it's right there. Everyone knows that. Well, guess what? Everyone knows isn't science. Everyone knows is, is, is just, is, um, is literally how superstition works. And so what we have in many parts of the uh, atmospheric sciences is a larger, you know, some section thereof, let's say meteorology or climatology, is that part of it has gone off into Looneyville. And the reason it's gone off into Looneyville is because everyone is so confused that it's become a, um, a battle of politics and the best politician wins. And that's what's happened. What we have now is best described as politics, as being... Um, 
And the reason is very simple, because everyone's confused, and when everyone's confused, politics wins. And once you establish politics, you're not going to get any science in there. It's just not going to happen. You're not going to, just no way, because they've got their, they've built a fort. And anyone who wants to suggest that, hey, they don't know, they don't got it all figured out, well, they have ways of dealing with that, and they will, you know? They'll just simply, you know, throw their dominance around and uh, alienate people. And that's just what happens. They just alienate people, you know? And they do it deliberately. And they, they actually, and here's the thing. They actually believe they're doing a good thing. They actually believe they're doing a service for humanity and science. That's what they literally believe. So they'll have no problem at all of, you know, disparaging somebody or, you know, and that's what they do is they don't attack my theory. They attack me. Yeah, they just attack me. They don't even bother with the theory. And I guess that's consistent with the fact that from their perspective, what I'm saying is so completely absurd as to not even be considered. Well, that's the mistake. Here's the thing. Uh, what I'm saying actually makes sense. There really is no uh, gaseous H2O in the atmosphere. And their notion of convection, which is which came at which is really the reason they have this notion of gaseous H2O, their notion of convection is now suddenly completely unworkable because it completely destroys the whole mechanism. The revelation that there's no gaseous H2O in the atmosphere completely destroys um, meteorology's basic assumption about convection. Because convection assumes that the weight of the H2O molecule being 18, and the fact that the weight of the average of the atmosphere, uh, mostly if we consider you know, oxygen and uh, nitrogen, that the average of the atmosphere, which is around 29, it's actually a little higher though when you consider argons in there too. So let's just say 30, okay? Um, and so that difference of 30 to 18, that 12 point to them is a magic ticket to explain uplift of storms. That's it. Since water that has moisture in it is lighter then therefore um, we now can explain how things go up in storms and that's their full reasoning right there there's really no more sophistication to it than that now think about it um, see now when something goes up in storms now, when you, if you do observe a storm and you do observe uplift and, and of course, there's a lot of gusty winds associated with that and rain and um, that sort of thing. Oh. And so there is definitely something moving up in a storm. But can it possibly be water? Well, yes, definitely water is involved, too. But does that mean that water is the thing that's providing the uplift due to buoyancy? Due to the fact that a body of air has more water in it, and therefore it's more buoyant? Does that work out? Well, actually, it does not work out at all. 
and that's because there really is no gaseous H2O in the atmosphere and therefore the droplet which is going to be you know 100 to um, a thousand times more heavier per per volume than genuine gaseous H2O is going to make any body of air it's in heavier heavier so bodies of air that have moisture in them are relatively relative to bodies of air who have less moisture okay are indisputably heavier I mean there's no way you can challenge that you know unless you unless you believed that H2O was gaseous and that what does that mean that means that we don't have any explanation for uplift and is that a problem for meteorology you bet it is because that means that they are completely clueless about storms and that's what's happening they fucking don't know anything they're so completely confused and they've been pretending for so long that they've further confused themselves with some additional notions I won't go into detail on those right now. One of those is dry layer capping. Look into that, where you have this magic dry layer. And this magic dry layer s explains why storms don't happen when, according to their theory, it should happen all the time, especially where there's evaporation. Because if evaporation produces gas, then that's where you would expect the uplift to be. Of course, that, in reality, there's no relationship. And my point is, that's why they invented the so-called magical ga cap. A layer in the sky that has structural properties that produces a downforce and here's the really silly part about that it's the dry, it's a dry layer it's gas the last thing in the atmosphere that's gonna have any structural properties is a genuine gas that's essentially what a gas is it has no structure that's why it's a gas and yet they were just saying oh we're gonna pull this out of the, out of our hat here and the last one is another magical condition called co heat of condensation and what it is if you just imagine that h2o uh, turns gaseous upon evaporation goes up condenses and and causes you know causes rain whatever clouds whatever if you just assume that then you can also just kind of throw in this other kind of ridiculous assumption that out of that phase transition since you know you're heating the water on the bottom right out of that phase transition comes this magical uh, source of heat this heat that comes up with it and this heat transfers into winds and so you see that's their whole bowl of wax they have this kind of a, a narrative where you start with these really kind of silly assumptions and you look for other things that fit to make it seem like it works and so unless you know better and I'll let, you know you let's say you take a class in meteorology you're gonna think hey this makes sense this really works unfortunately when you actually look at the details and you do some real science and you just don't take people's words on it keep in mind that most people believe so deeply that they don't even know they're lying when you actually do some real research and, you, and it becomes apparent to you that it's pretty much impossible for H2O to be gaseous in Earth's atmosphere, their whole theory just starts to break down. Then their whole, their dry layer looks ridiculous and their magic latent heat that produces for some strange unknown reason, supposedly, according to them, gusty winds, it just breaks down. And of course, once that breaks down, it leaves a great big hole in our understanding 
and that hole has to be filled by something else that explains what's actually happening in the atmosphere and since I had you know I had all this insight it was relatively it wasn't simple but it was relatively straightforward to figure out that there is actually a role of water in the atmosphere that is very important to understanding what happens in storms and in atmospheric flow and that role is actually structural it has it's structural and it has to do with focusing flow and providing the structure thereof think of that focusing throw flow implied providing the structure thereof and here's the most important part of all this is what underlies the emergence of vortices and these vortices are extremely um, persistent all uh, existent I should say all over the atmosphere especially traveling all the way down to the rainforest but they do so up in the tropopause and they're pretty much invisible but and there's two reasons they're invisible one is they're perfectly clear and the other one is they tend to cause a lot of clouds in their vicinity but here's the thing what you know clouds are water and moist whatever these these things these vortices that exist in the atmosphere and that um, that are really the thing that causes weather um, these things are the result of the properties of water that I was mentioning before where I said that surface tension is relative it isn't just one level it's actually there's three more levels up now if you can therefore create a situation where you create higher degree of surface you can create a different kind of substance and that's what happens in the atmosphere and that substance I refer to as vortice plasma because when you look at a tornado you will notice that it has a very distinct structure and that there's something that appears to be spinning around uh, uh, the flow the main flow which is going up but then spinning around that well that's actually the moist layer but the moist layer has is different in that the water therein is spinning very rapidly as polymers and its surface is maximized and when the surface is maximized its surface tension is maximized which is another way of saying its polarity has been turned up and since its polarity is turned up they have a higher higher ability to affect each other's flow and therefore they act like the, the molecules in the plasma they attract each other even though they're still a gas and that's what's really happening in the atmosphere in terms of weather it's got nothing to do with convection um, and it's got nothing to do with anything meteorologists are going to say and and by the way they're not gonna they are extremely um, closed-minded and that's because of all the confusion it's because there's really it's it, it's a boat without a rudder and there's no cooperation on the ship and no no one has no one has any idea where this thing is going and it's all politics and it's been that way for so long that it's, they're completely, they're completely beyond salvaging. Um, and um, anyways, this is James McGinn. I'm president of Solving Tornadoes, and um, hope you enjoyed this uh, podcast. Let me see now. Uh, today is February. I think it's the fourth. It's Sunday. 
it's like 3.30 or no, it's like 5 in the afternoon. And um, well, I hope everyone, I'm going to go watch some Olympics, hoping to catch the downhill racing. Uh, I love that. Anyways, I will talk to everyone later. Thank you. Bye.